hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. How do you live a life of abundance even if you feel broke right now? You're listening to Queer Money episode number 450. And today, money and life coach Lita Peterson, guest of Queer Money episode number 148, returns to share her answers to this question and so much more based on her book, The Mindful Millionaire, Overcome Scarcity, Experience Prosperity, and Create the Life You Really Want. And stay tuned to the end of the show to hear how you might win a free copy of her book. Now, on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Welcome back to the Queer Money Podcast, folks. Uh, this might be a little bit of a longer episode than we're inclined to typically do, in part because we know that this is a, I don't want to say it's a challenge for many of us in our community, but it's something that many of us are working on. And I do know that David and I have struggled with this ourselves, even recently. So we know how challenging it can be. We all want to operate and live in this place of abundance and try to break free of our, our money mindset. And we've talked about breaking free of our money mindset quite a bit on this show. But today we want to sort of focus more on how to actually create and live in that space of abundance. So who better to have on the podcast to talk about that than the founder of the Mindful Millionaire Facebook community and the author of The Mindful Millionaire, then our friend and uh, returning guest, Lisa Peterson. Welcome back. Hello. So nice to be here. <laughs> Likewise. So we had the pleasure of meeting you unexpectedly in Paris a couple of months back. And we talked a little bit about your book and the things you're working on. And we thought, you know, we really need to have you come back and, and really dive deep into this topic because we know it's of importance to many of our listeners and, and viewers. So let's sort of set a baseline, if that's okay. What exactly is a mindful millionaire? A mindful millionaire is someone who has overcome the stories of lack and limitation in their life. Not that they'll completely go away, but that you become an observer, a witness to these patterns of lack and how that would look is you go to buy something that is really meaningful and important to you, and you know it aligns with your deepest values, and yet you can't buy that thing because you're so caught up in the stories of who you are and why that's a bad thing and deprivation kicks in. And, and it's not that we buy everything you know that, that comes to us, but really we have a very mindful relationship with our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors as it relates to money. So it's not about it having, you don't have to have a million dollars to be a mindful millionaire. You need to have some degree of awareness of this relationship that you have with, with money so that you are creating and feel empowered to create a relationship that is inspired by abundance rather than lack. So it's kind of synonymous with having a sense of financial freedom, would you say? Yes, but this is, I think, the point I'm trying to make that you may not have like, quote, unquote, financial freedom because you have all the money that you need to take care of yourself for the rest of your you know, life, but you have an approach to life that comes at it from a place of like, I'm free to choose my reaction, my response, my feelings as it relates to money. I don't want money controlling me. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. <laughs> that is so... And the reason I, I we know that it's hard is because we struggle with it even now on a daily basis ourselves. So I, I guess the, my question is, is it... Is it and I think I know the answer, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Is it possible to actually achieve that where, where you're sort of free of those money stories that we've all been clinging to since four to seven years old? The answer I will give you now is most definitely. And a little funny side note is that I thought when I finished the book that I was there. And three years later, you know, actually four years later, because it takes about a year for a book to come into creation through the publishing 
now I'm really benefiting from the work at a level that I didn't even know was possible. But it is a true testament to the fact that this work that I've been diving into, I feel like for 30 years now, really works. But it is not a quick fix. It takes time and it takes a big commitment that I refuse to live this way anymore. No matter how long it takes, I'm going to break free of these patterns. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that you use that term practice, right? Because I, I think when we all think of the word practice, we oftentimes think about sports or a musical instrument or something like that, right? So when you first start practicing, you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a pianist, but you do play the piano, you're practicing, right? Or if you're a runner, you're not necessarily after running your first mile or two miles would call yourself a runner, but you are practicing. And I think that's that's the important thing is even you look at even some of the experts or the people who have been lauded in various fields, even though they're at the pinnacle of their abilities, they still practice every single day. Such a good point. And I'm practicing every single day. But I do think that it's nice to know, too, that there is this place of arriving somewhere as well. And that's why I love the question, just can you do it? Yes, you can. And it's probably more built inside of the confidence that you feel each and every day when you stop yourself from reactive patterns and you're able to catch it and think, wait a minute, I know where this goes if I continue this thought, but what if I stop it and I try something different? And that's all that it takes to over time realize that you are on the path and you are taking good care of yourself. Yeah. That's why one of my favorite quotes is very early on. You say, money is rarely the real issue. Instead, the problem is your thoughts, feelings, and beliefs about money. And it reminds me of the, the Pirates of the Caribbean quote, right? The problem isn't the problem. The problem is your opinion or your thoughts about the problem, right? <laughs> so I think I think that might jolt some of our listeners because a lot of us feel confident and I think safe to some regard that money is the problem. But you're saying that it more often than not, maybe not exclusively, but more often than not, it's it's your thoughts about the problems. Can you please extrapolate on that a little bit, please? Yeah, because what we're touching upon here is fear. It's the way that fear shows up inside of our relationship with money that causes us the grief, that causes us the problems. And as you know, in the book, we talk, I talk a lot about scarcity and research around scarcity. And, you know, this isn't just something that I'm making up, this idea that fear and particularly irrational fears about money are what really is our demise because we go off on tangents. And while we're on these tangents, whether it's, you know, freeze, fight, you know, like fawn, you know, like all those behaviors when we're inside of fear. When we do that, we lose the ability to be in the present moment and question the assumptions of the fear and figure out that there's actually a lot of possible solutions in any given situation that can get us out of the thing that we are responding to. But inside of fear, it's really tough to help ourselves get out of it. And so scarcity is a concept that's saying that when we learn about it, we start to question, like, who do I become when I'm inside of scarcity? Do I make bad decisions for myself? Do I not create the best possible solution that takes really good care of myself? Because that's what we do. We just, I've worked with people in their money for 30 years now. And I just saw over and over and over again when people had any kind of fear associated and they weren't able to see it and then move beyond it, they would probably not take as good of care of themselves financially as they could have. So that's what we're trying to examine. I appreciate that. You know, I'm going to go back to use the word fear a number of times and go back to that. I don't remember who came up with the acronym for fear, false evidence appearing real. This whole idea is what we're seeing is not the truth. That's not reality. And if you're making plans based on something that isn't reality, then your plans are never going to be fruitful because they're based on something that isn't real, right? So we need to make our plans on based on what is real. And the only way to know what really is real is to look at what's going on right now in the present. 
And we want to always, when we get into this conversation, we want to be really fair and say, of course, there are times when it's really scary because you don't have enough money or you're concerned about your ability to, you know, pay a bill or take care of all of your financial obligations. Like we're not saying that that's not true, that there's a challenge. What we're saying is that it's super important if you want to be able to take better care of yourself, that you pause, you see that fear and you you get familiar enough with that fear that it's not dictating what you do next. And, you know, great practice, if it's okay, really short, that we can do, and, and everybody's different, but this works really well for me, is it's like, ask yourself that question of 10 times you do this. So here's the situation. You're totally terrified. Things feel like they're falling apart. Go to, and then what? Like allow yourself to go to the end of the fear. And before you know it, you're like, you might be at like, and then I die. And then you might even chuckle because you're like, holy crap, I'm caught up in this thing that all stems back to this really strange fear that I'm going to die or I'm going to be destitute. And, and really, I have a lot of friends. They're kind of helpful when things fall apart. You know, like all of a sudden you start to realize when you ask yourself, and then what? And then what happens? And then what happens? You're like, okay, I'm starting to get outside of this fear spiral and start to look at it from a little bit better of a perspective, which might be including humor. Yeah, it's true. I, I think about the path you just went down is very similar to what a mentor of ours took us down when we first thought about quitting our full-time corporate jobs and starting our own business and he said, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? You end up back in corporate. That's the worst thing, right? I mean, and that's the reality. That was, and that I think what he did was somewhat might equate to dying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he took us off the fear train of what's going to happen if our business fails instead of, okay, you know what the worst thing is that could happen. And that is you'd have to go back to work in a corporate America. Now look at all the other possibilities. Those are the things that you can focus on and think about. Here are the opportunities. Here's the ways that we can resolve this. It really does open up your your mind to, okay, the worst thing may not really be the worst thing in the world. The worst thing would be moving in with your in-laws? That would be the worst thing. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. <laughs> and thanks for thanks for adding that part because I didn't say what is the worst thing. So I'm glad you're helping me here. <laughs> but I think you know it's easy to to talk about it on a podcast. It's easy to listen to it and, and say yes, that all makes sense. And it's easier to talk to your mentor and have him guide you down a, a path of logical thinking. I think it's in the moment it can be really challenging. I mean, if you're one of those people who looks at your account on a daily basis, you're constantly reminding yourself of that position of, of that feeling of fear. What are some practical steps that people can implement to maybe just sort of change those behaviors to not create the environment or the thought process of fear? The reason the book is called Mindful Millionaire is because the number one most powerful thing that I have ever done for myself is to learn how to meditate, to learn how to gain some degree of control over my mind and, you know, or my thoughts would be another way to say it. And so many of us, especially in the world that we live in right now, where there's so much context switching, where we just go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, it's actually making it harder for us to be mindful of what's happening in the present moment. And so if we don't have control of our minds, a lot of what I talk about will fall on deaf ears or won't actually change your patterns because 
right at the get-go, we've got to be able to slow down, know what it's like to take a nice deep breath, to collect our thoughts, and to witness our thoughts, which is what we learn how to do when we're mindful or when we're meditating. And that is the launch pad, if you will, for better ultimate decisions, because we, we stop our emotions from getting the better of us when we can just witness, this is what's happening to me. This is what this feels like in my body. Oh, when I get that headache that comes on, I've noticed a pattern that those headaches come when I'm in scarcity. Like whenever I'm worried about lack, I get a headache. Gosh, that's a really powerful awareness. You know, that's what we're trying to do through meditation. There are other practices, but I just want to pause there and see what you Yeah, think. no, that, that makes complete sense. So what you're saying is to sort of separate yourself a bit and acknowledge that you aren't your thoughts, but you're the observer of your thoughts. And therefore, if you're the observer of your thoughts, then you have some degree of control over that. You don't need to let your thoughts dictate how you feel and, and and your actions, you can separate yourself and say, okay, now let me get a little bit of control over this before things spiral in a direction they don't necessarily need to go. It's a great description of it. Yeah. Cause we're all different, but many of us, like for me, I mean, I think around sleep and you're trying to go to sleep at night and then a fear comes in and it takes over your thoughts and then you can't fall asleep and it just spirals and gets bigger and bigger. Or maybe you wake up in the middle of the night and that thought pops in like, how am I going to pay that bill that's due next week or you know something financially related? And then off we go. And so what we're saying is, is the the goal is to not have the off we go, to have a practice that allows you to feel it and see it and say, wait a minute, this is going to take me to a very irrational place. And if I can just kind of pull it away, like pull myself away from it and not pursue it, I'll be in much better shape to make conscious, aware decisions of what I do next. Right. What would you say is a way to divert that thought then? I recognize, let's say you've, well, first of all, I'm going to say, I appreciate that your talk, the way you're talking and what you're sharing here is something that every single one of us have access to. You don't need to be rich or poor or any le- income level. Every single one of us with cognitive ability has access to this, but if I am the kind of person who can get myself to regularly go down a spiral while I'm laying there in bed, getting ready to go to sleep, what's a what's a good way to say, okay, how do I jump to a different track? How do I move to a better thought, to a different thought, to something completely different? So I, you know, put a dead end to that thought process. Great question. And I'll say it's actually not another thought. That's the first thing, because another thought is kind of the same of what you were doing, and it will inevitably lead back. The best possible thing we can do, and this is where breathing comes in, is a breathwork practice, which can be very, very simple. Instead of following the thought, what I want you to do is take 10 big, deep breaths might start with three, but 10 is better where you're just like, okay, Lisa, you know, I heard that podcast conversation. I'm just going to take these breaths and see what happens. Now, this is where just our body, it's like you start to think, oh my gosh, our bodies are actually created to take good care of ourselves. They're like here and now and like supportive. When we take 10 big deep breaths, We neutralize the nervous system, we relax, and there's a really good chance that you will not go back to the thought without actually trying to find it. You will be able to go to sleep. You will be able to focus on something else. We do have short attention spans. I mean, if you can wait long enough, there will be another thing that comes up if you're just living your day and you're not needing to go to sleep, for example. But the breath is the great neutralizer that helps you right here, right now. And it takes really good care of you. Like, don't have more thoughts would be my suggestion. Breathe. As you say earlier on in your book, those of your clients who you've worked with over, over many, many years, those who viewed 
money more as a tool, even when there were financial problems, when they viewed it as a tool and didn't operate from a space of fear, they were able to come up with more practical or and better solutions. So that's sort of if you're you're having this pervasive anxiety about finances, you're able to detach yourself from the thought, observe your thought, maybe change the track a little bit. Then when you operate from a space of I don't want to say is it, maybe rationality isn't the right word, but if you operate from the space of, of rationality, then you're probably able to come up with a better solution than you otherwise would if you're operating from a space of fear. Is that true? Yes, definitely. And we're also now kind of getting into the power of our money stories, which is a big part of the book. And the reason it's so important that we talk about money stories is that many of us, because money's uncomfortable, we haven't spent enough time thinking about where did these patterns of behavior, you know, come from? Why am I doing what I'm doing over and over again? And what I found over time in working with, you know, thousands of people is that when we can start to understand the story behind our behavior, we actually become very empowered to change it. But when we don't understand where it came from, we don't understand, you know, how maybe our parents' relationship with money or things that were happening in the economy when we were coming of age affected us. Like when we don't understand where these patterns come from, we're kind of disempowered to change them going forward. They have this uncanny way of taking the past and creating more of the stuff that we dealt with in the past into our future. Because that's what we think of. That's our perspective of the world. And many of our perspectives about money, and, and I'm, you know, a number one on this list, like my perspective, just like most other people, was predicated on what I learned from my family. And I either was trying to do the complete opposite of what my parents did, or I was doing the same thing. The problem is, is a lot of it was very unconscious. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't see what was happening. And if you don't know what's happening, you don't get the benefit of knowing how to change it and do something different going forward because it's very unconscious. Right. So you have like your work cut out for you because when you just think about I think one of the reoccurring stories that we hear from millennials is that we came or that they came of an age during the housing crisis and the Great Recession. That sort of set like the tone for for many of their financial lives. It's just so, and, and knowing the struggles that that we've had over to overcome our money stories, I don't really have a question about this. It's just a very daunting task. This human experience. <laughs> and you know, I, I was thinking as you were talking about this, the the scenario there or or the path. It reminded me of when you were a little kid, when we were little kids, and we did something that disappointed, upset, infuriated, angered our parents. They often asked us, why did you do that? And we would just sit there and we'd stare at them and be like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I did that. I have no clue why I did that. You know, as children, oftentimes we don't. We don't understand why we think a certain way. But what you're saying is, as adults, we do have the capacity to look back on our lives and say, okay, why do I do this this way? Why do I think about things this way? And the more we know, we start to learn about, and I'll pause for a second here. This isn't so that we can make an excuse. This is just so that we understand why we make the decisions. Why do we decide to throw the credit card bill in the trash without even opening it up? Why do we spend all of our money on Friday and then when Monday rolls around, we don't have enough money to pay the bills? We can ask ourselves, what's driving me to do that? And it doesn't necessarily mean that just understanding is the answer, but it does open up some insight as to why we think the way we do. Yeah, it opens up a great deal of compassion because I think that when we have compassion for ourselves, we get out of the critic and we get into the self-love like, oh, I love you. I appreciate you. I see that you had some situations occur when you were young that really changed the trajectory of your life. Like, let's have some compassion. 
And when we have compassion, all of a sudden we're willing to get vulnerable, maybe more vulnerable with ourselves. If we don't have compassion, we're filled with judgment. We're not going to be vulnerable with ourselves or with others. And funny enough, like we're, we're recording this before I head to Bali and I'm doing a workshop in Bali. And one of the things I'm so excited to share with folks goes in line with this, which is when we learn how to be honest with ourselves about our money stories, then all of a sudden we actually start to become honest with other people about our money stories. And I'll tell you, if you want to become even more connected, intimate, you know, you name it with a partner, with a close friend, open up the conversation about money stories and allow yourself to talk about it because I have seen friendships go from complete strangers to like best friends just in finding common ground around our money stories because it's not talked about enough. And what's amazing, and it's like, oh my gosh, you see me, I see you, let's help each other. Let's be there when it's rocky. Let's be there when it's tough. You can trust that I'm not gonna judge you. I see you and I accept you for who you are and let's do this. Like, it's amazing. So even that is one of these tools that's like, doesn't cost anything, doesn't take anything but your own effort to like look inside of these little teeny stories. You know, I say one in the book about, When I think I was seven or eight, I got a purse for my birthday. I had money in that purse. We went to this uh, street fair. I was playing. I lost the purse. I went to buy something with the purse and realized that the purse was left at the playground. I went running back to this playground and someone had stolen my money. And just realizing this story had a lot to do with why I'm a little crazy about holding on to my purse still to this day. Like... You know, it doesn't have to be big stuff, but it was a realization for me of why I have an abnormal sensation that occurs when I think that my wallet has been stolen, for example, you know, and it's just these things are out there and, you know, they may not cause suffering, but they may because we don't understand them. Right, right. So I'm curious, you say that in the the book that we, one of the struggles with money, why breaking free of our money stories is so hard is because we, we we connect our values, our self-worth to our money story. And, you know, for many of our listeners and, and, and viewers, they've, they've lived lives of rejection either from their family, from their churches, from their governments. Even today, you know, we're talking about Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, whatnot, constantly getting these macro and micro messages that you're not worthy. You don't deserve the same quality of life as, as others of us. Does that mean that the self-care we need to practice or the exercises we should adopt would be any different than, say, the general population? Or And if so, what could we do to sort of overcome sort of those systemic challenges that many of us face? I would say that this work is even more important for you know, I'll say oppressed communities or marginalized groups, because you are dealing with a lot of unconscious bias and conscious bias from others. And that adds an extra layer that we can become disempowered through the sheer weight of other people's judgments. And I'm sure everyone could find a place where this happens or they were bullied or they were, you know, marginalized for an aspect of themselves. But I would say that I have found again and again, the more people are treated differently, the more important it is to own your story, you know, without any shame, without any guilt, without any of that. And and the only way I've gotten through shame and guilt is by the discovery of these biases, the things that I hold inside of myself because they were given to me and I don't even know it. And so, you know, how that shows up also with money is, I mean, let's face it, when we're, when we don't feel like we fit in, we oftentimes will create other ways to like feel like we're fitting in. And for me, I mean, money was totally this, like, 
I didn't have money growing up. And I thought that, okay, if I have money, then I'll be accepted. Then I will be seen in a certain way. If I'm successful and I'm seen as successful, which means wearing expensive clothes, you know, like I would spend all my money on a certain way that kind of overcome these fears that I was, I mean, we'll say it like, I think I had a really strong fear early on of being considered white trash because when I was growing up, we always had broken down cars in front of our house. My parents were fighting and they were very vocal and things would break and scream. And it was just this, like all the things that you would hate to be identified as were the way that I saw myself. And so money was a way for me to like overcome that and and kind of look like I'm normal and fitting in. So that's a long answer, but those are just some of the things that I think we need to understand that those biases, at first it's from other people, but after a while we can become those things and Mm -hmm. work our whole life to try and overcome them. And money it feels like it's a tool, but in fact, it's actually controlling you. You don't have control of it. Right. I was just thinking as you're talking about that and describing that scenario about the general perception in the world today of LGBT people. I'm going to say specifically gay men, because it's often we're oftentimes portrayed this way as, you know, we're dual income, no kids. We have nice houses, nice cars. We take these vacations, right? If that's what everybody's expectation of you is, you don't want to not live up to that expectation, right? Because if you don't live up to that expectation, oh, then you're not you're not actually good enough. You're not you're not the person that we thought you were, and you all of a sudden you feel like you're disappointing everyone because you do dress down, you do live a casual life. You don't have the things, and maybe it's because you don't want to or because you don't have the money to, but then you start to judge yourself. And that's where we get into that kind of, I think we may start to drift more into that scarcity mindset is I can't live up to other people's expectations of who I should be. And a lot of us face those kinds of things in when we're in a marginalized community. This is the big challenge that we are trying to overcome when we think about how do we live the most fulfilling lives that we possibly can. At some point, it can't be about what other people think about us. And what I found is I was able to use my patterns with money to understand that I was actually living inside of what other people thought of me rather than what I thought about myself. Like I used money to get there to like understand, wow, there's something here for me to learn. There's something here for me to change so that I can be fulfilled. And it's never, ever, ever going to ultimately come from what other people think about us. We have to break that pattern ultimately. And I would say it's harder when you grow up with these stories of, you know, not fitting in or not being accepted for who you are. Right. And that's why I think it's important for some of us, and David and I have had to do this ourselves, is why is it, ask ourselves, is why is it so important for us to have all these, this name brand clothing? Why is it important for us to go on a particular vacation to a particular place? Why is it important for us to have a particular type of car? Is that because it's definitely something that we want? Or is that sort of the pressure that we're feeling from society to say to somehow say, hey, look, I am worthy or I, or I am validated because I have these things. You must accept me. And that can be a, even harder, I think, in today's culture because marketing has gotten like to a science almost to make you feel like you're not good enough unless you have the next thing. So you're all constantly on that hedonic treadmill. And then of course, you know, you have Instagram where everybody's showing the best version of their lives and you're just thinking, oh, okay, I have to have that that same Instagram picture too. Otherwise my, my Instagram feed is boring. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're getting into, you can go, I mean, we never know people's economic situations, right? I mean, for one person, a very expensive bag didn't costs very much in comparison to like what their overall net worth is. 
And then for another person, it took like a mortgage or multiple mortgage payments to, you know, buy that bag. Like we live in very strange times, but I think the point is, is that we're going to have a healthier relationship with ourselves if we're doing it for our own enjoyment because we can afford it and we have created a situation where that's like not a big deal. But when we put ourselves in situations where we're spending a lot of money or we're doing certain behaviors because of how other people will look at us, those are the times to question those things, right? I mean, it's not bad or good, right or wrong. It's just questioning, like, is this really the healthiest way for me to take care of myself? Absolutely. How important is it to make money your how rather than your why? Yeah. When we think about making money, our how, our how is all about like, how do I do it? How do I play life to win? How do I create the things that are most interesting and fun for me? But when it's our why, which is exactly what we were just talking to, it comes from a very shadowy, dark place that we actually wouldn't want to tell anyone about. We're just like, I need to prove this, not this is coming from my creativity or my joy of living or my opportunity to you know, bring this best person that I am in an authentic way into, into life. So The how is about playing life to win. And that doesn't mean you're the only one who wins. That can mean that a lot of people win with you. Like, I want to be really clear. And scarcity and the why is like playing not to lose. I like that. Yes. Because a lot of us are operating from a place of not wanting to lose. Because that's our fear that that's going to be our next reality. Makes a lot of sense. Like, I feel like we're as- asking the same question over and over again in different ways. <laughs> I think because it's so challenging. But how do you say I'm gonna I'm gonna live from a space of how rather than why? Especially since we're almost like sort of conditioned to live with a how, right? Go to high school, go to college, get the best grades, get the best career you can, make as much money as you possibly can. That's sort of the goal, so that you die with a little bit of money and some security, right? So it's almost like we're conditioned to, to operate from the the why. But how do you make that complete? shift and and operate from a different space. I think I mentioned that when I finished the book, I thought I was there. And then what I've continued to see is that this work has a greater and greater impact over time. And one of the reasons why this has helped me so much, and I think a lot of people, is it isn't conventional wisdom that's going to help us break these patterns. And even I'll, I'll lump like traditional psychology therapy model, you know, unless your therapist has gone into their own money story and done a lot of work about this money aspect, there's a good chance that they're just not going to know how to help you break these patterns. Okay. And I saw this problem over and over again. So first of all, I want to be clear what we were talking about earlier was Just by knowing what's happening, we can change our behavior. We can start to change our behavior, but that still wasn't enough. And I think that's why ultimately the Mindful Millionaire, we've sold a lot of copies. It's out there. It's touching people's lives in a a different way is I realized I needed a better tool to show people how to break these patterns. And I wanted it to be fun and I wanted it to be novel. And I wanted to actually still get into these like pockets of patterns that we do over and over again to gain some awareness so that we stop doing it. Like we have conscious choice. This isn't going to help me. And so I don't know if it's a good time to go into a little bit of that, but I just want to say that that there's a process inside of the Mindful Millionaire that helps people kind of go through these steps, but it's also inspired by a very woo-woo kind of idea. So you let me know what you want to know. (laughs) We love woo-woo. And actually, that was going to be my next question because you do have your your I Prosper process that you outline in the book. It incorporates a lot of thinking or a lot of journaling to sort of dig deep into that story. And I think that, you know, as you were just talking there, like you've really outlined like 
you've got to first acknowledge that this is these are what these thoughts are doing to you. But then you need to sort of dig even deeper as to why do they keep coming up. So do you mind please explaining the I prosper process, at least at a high level, yet to understand yeah. the whole thing, you have to buy the book. It's deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so underneath I prosper is the smashing up of where I took all of my years of mindfulness combined with all of my years of understanding, you know, money, being a certified financial planner, being a, having an MBA in finance. I smashed these two worlds together. And what ended up happening is I realized that I could teach people about their relationship with money through the lens of the chakras. Now, the chakras are not something new. They have been around for thousands of years. They're used heavily in the Hindu culture, but they kind of spread out, you know, throughout the world in all different ways, especially by new age communities. But keep in mind, the chakras are what inspired Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So if you're familiar with that work, then we're not going to some kind of bizarre place. We're just going to a place that says that we as humans are kind of working our way up a ladder where we start satisfying our most basic needs. And as we do that, then a whole new rung appears and we focus on like our pleasure needs, right? And then we get to the next rung and it's about feeling like an empowered person. And then we get to the next rung and it's about love and relationships. And what I found in all of my research of chakras and knowing so much about money was it was a perfect way for us to uncover places that we get stuck inside of this relationship with money. Because it's not the same for everybody. In fact, we all have different things where rational thinking goes out the window. And so I wanted to show people a framework that got into like, okay, here's my pattern. Now, what do I do about it? That was what I was trying to do. And then from there, the other cool thing that I, I came back towards the end of the book and said, well, once you know this about yourself, you can start really creating a strong financial future for yourself by just not getting stuck in those traps anymore. And here's how you can lay that out for yourself. You know, it becomes a tool. Money becomes a tool rather than an emotional experience that you're not quite sure where you got lost. So right. the I Prosper was trying to help people through a pathway to do that. Nice. And it's very well spelled out. And when you were, when I actually listened to the book as I read along. And when you, when I started hearing you, when you first mentioned the chakras, I was like, where is she going to go with chakras? How do the two, <laughs> how do the two overlap? This is, this is a little bit woo woo even for me. But then when you, when you articulate it, I'm like, oh, it makes so much sense. And so with that, do, do you mind, what would be a common blockage that somebody say that has, that's maybe tied to a chakra and how could they sort of break free from that with, with, with the work that you recommend? Yeah. And so to come to mind, the root chakra is the one that most of the time people associate with money. But I've said, no, actually, it's all seven. All seven have some connection to money. But at the root chakra, this is about fear of being a bag person. Like, like I'm going to lay ladies and end up, Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be like, if you watch that movie with Kate Blanchett, blue Jasmine at the uh, end of the movie, she's like sitting on this park bench. You have no idea where she's going to go. She's kind of going crazy. And she's just sitting there talking to herself and she has no money, you know, and you're like, no, don't let that happen to me. <laughs> like, that would be a root chakra fear. Okay. And so by realizing it many times in the society that we live in, we're probably not going to be in that situation as long as we, you know, have a job and we figure out how to manage our money. Like it's not a rational fear. Although I will say it's becoming more of a rational fear in the society system that we live in because there's no safety nets, you know, just so it is something that I think we need to be aware of. But for most of us, it's not going to happen. So realizing that, but I'm going to talk about the sacral and, and I'm trying to think of what would be a good antidote. So I am safe. Like it can be as simple as a mantra. Like I am safe. I am supported. I have friends who will take me in if, you know, shit hits the fan and I don't have anywhere to live. Like it's that kind of very grounded. I'm okay. It's going to be okay. There are options. The sacral chakra, which is interesting comparison. So the root chakra is masculine is the way to think of it. 
The sacral chakra is the feminine energy because this is all tying back to Hindu culture, Shakti and Shiva and the blending of the two masculine feminine. And it's a dance. So we go into the sacral chakra. The sacral chakra is about pleasure. It's about desire. It's about like feeling like what's important to you is going to be something you can receive and experience. And we can really see how the sacral chakra can show up for a lot of people. The sacral chakra shows up in debt, like having debt because we wanted all these things. We wanted to feel pleasure. We got it, but then we got this residual hangover called debt. And so what we're starting to do is it's like, ooh, maybe I need to look at like, where have I been deprived of my greatest needs and desires? in my past that caused me to continuously try to get my needs met, even though I don't have the money in this case to pay for it. So it opens up just a greater understanding of like, what might my money story be? Because I'm trying to make it easy to go Mm -hmm. back. But then you come, you know, you look at it, you see it and you're like, oh, I see what's going on here. Now, what am I going to do about it? How can I take better care of myself? Yeah. Yeah. I'd love, you know, when you, when you, when you explain it like that, when you're, when you do that kind of work, then you can start to realize like, oh, I'm not just an idiot with money or I'm just not, I'm not just bad with numbers. It's actually, I'm doing something based on a past experience. And when you can tie those two together, it's almost like, okay, I, I am being logical and rational. I'm not just a crazy person with my finances, but now that I understand what is causing me or inspiring me to act in such a way or to take such action, then I can step back, separate myself a little bit and say, how can I respond in a different or more fruitful way? You're not caught up in that story dictating the rest of your life. You're saying, oh, that's something that happened to me. I can see how I've gotten myself into trouble repeating that thing over and over again. And now I see that I have, I mean, Stepping back, I think that everything I talk about, and I know you guys feel this way, there is underneath all of this, this belief in the human spirit, like uncompromising belief that we can take really, really, really good care of ourselves. That if we can just get out of our own way, there is always a way to help ourselves live a better life. Like there, there's that promise that I think that we, we want to return to again and again, you know, call it hope, call it belief in the resilience of the human spirit, whatever you want. Like, I want to make sure that we understand this is, it's that critic voice that you mentioned that can really get us into trouble because it forgets that we are incredibly powerful to change situations again and again and again for the better. Yeah. You know, as you're, you're saying that, I'm thinking about Viktor Frankl's man's search for, for meaning. And many of us sort of, I think, f- feel stuck in the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs because of the society and the culture that, w- that we're, we're living in and, and things that seem to be happening to us. But I, what's so profound about Viktor Frankl's story is that even though he was living in these death camps and in a period of time he was in Auschwitz, he was still able to cling to something bigger than himself, his current situation. And hanging on to that, he claims, is what helped him survive some of the most arduous conditions that that, that maybe anybody has ever experienced. And if, if he's able to do that, then it, it's more inspiring for us to be, or more possible for us, I think, to be able to say, if he can do that or could have done that, then, then we can too in our circumstances. Would you say? 100%. And I don't care how old you are. I don't care about where you're starting from. I don't care about all the challenges that you've had in your life, because those do not define you. That's, I think, the message that the book is trying to remind you of that truth. Like you get to start from today with whatever resources you have. And sometimes it's a book is all that you've got. You know, you've got a book and you're like, I'm going to dive into it. Or maybe you've got a friend or you've got somebody who believes in you. But again and again, I think that this is where so many people fall short from creating their best lives is they think, well, because it's, I'm here where I'm here. This is what it looks like. This is what it's always going to look like. And I have proven to myself over and over again, absolutely not. 
if I don't like what this looks like, I can change it. And so all we need is just a little bit of hope that that's a possibility for you and you're on the train track moving in the right direction. Yeah. You say in the book somewhere, and I forget exactly how you said it, but something to the effect of you can decide today to not make the same decisions you were even making yesterday. Every decision is a new opportunity to make a decision you might not have otherwise made to try to change the trajectory of of your life. Or And as we're talking specifically here about your finances. Yeah. And I think that that's, the, that's one of the struggles, I think, especially after we saw the data from the LGBTQ plus money study with Motley Fools, there are a lot of LGBT folks who do feel stuck or struggling with their day-to-day needs, their keeping up with the cost of living, being able to afford everyday life. And that can sometimes become so overwhelming that that's all we see. But it's almost like we need to say, let's pull apart the curtains and see that there is something out there that's different. And how do I walk towards that? What is the first step that I can take towards that? And as you guys both just pointed out, sometimes it's just choosing to not make that same decision that we made yesterday or that we made earlier today or that we make every month. Just making one new decision, it helps to put us down a completely different path. It's not easy, but it is possible. And I think this is when we ask ourselves like, what am I surrounding myself with? You know, like, do I go onto the internet and instead of kind of looking at what's popular and what's trending, do I look for deeply inspiring transformational stories? And do I just watch them day in and day out until one day it's like, wait a minute, there's something in common with all these people. You know, there's a guy who was like, had been in the military and his body was totally not working anymore. He couldn't even walk. And then there's a story, like a videos of him deciding to become a yogi. And like at the end, he's like doing handstands and you're just like, okay, I just need to watch this kind of thing over and over again, because there was no reason why he would have been able to do that except for the human spirit showing up again and again and again, saying, I refuse to have today's situation be the rest of my life. Yeah. And I also very much appreciate that you you kind of lay this foundational idea that it will not be easy, right? We look at everyone else's circumstances and we say, oh, well, it was probably so easy for them because of this, this, and this. But we don't know what obstacles they had to get there. Maybe they're not the same kind of obstacles that we have, but just because they don't have the same obstacles that we have, doesn't mean that their path was easy. But and this is a this is a less brown quote that i love over and over again he always says this is this will it be easy no will it be worth it yes and that's the that's the thing is that it, we always want i think as an as natural that's the way our brains work our, as our brains want it to be easy the easier it is the less brain power we have to use less energy so historically that's what our our evolving bodies want is we want it to be easy but the reality is is that everything that we want does take some sort of effort and just start the process start the process and eventually we'll pick up steam, we'll get there. I talk in the book about some of the few, a few of the many tragedies that I've faced in my life with my parents' early death and being in my doctor's office, you know, which someone could say on the wrong day, but now in retrospect, I wonder if it was that I was there for a reason. But I think that I've learned over and over again that when we have a wish for change, And we're still combating, like, I will say, folks, I am always overcoming or trying to overcome a pattern of laziness. Like, no question about if I could just sit and be lazy and find the easiest pathway to like the best life, I would do it. I've tried to find it, like it it doesn't work. (laughs) But I feel like I've been put in situations and everyone I think is ultimately given nudges, you know, debt is a nudge challenge in in relationships is a nudge. Like some of them are big shoves, which is what I got. And I share those freely in this, in the book, because I want people to know, like, 
I probably wouldn't have chosen this path, but once I got into it and I started to see how many lives were changing and what was happening as a result, it motivated me. And I think that many times we just need to have a little bit of success to try something and have some success. And then we're like, wait a minute, if I only had to do this and I'm already seeing the reward, what would happen if I keep going with this? And and it's not like we get the end right away. Like that might take 10 or 20 years. Like for me, it's taken a long time. But I did get enough reinforcement when I put the effort out there that it was like, you you need to keep doing this. You need to stay on this track. Yeah. So with that, are, are you are you saying just start taking baby steps into this. So don't think you have to sit down and, and meditate for 30 minutes your first time through, because I still can't do that. <laughs> After all the years we've been trying to meditate, shoot for one to three minutes at first or start journaling and just do a half a page. Like Just do little things and start reflecting on why you might be acting or making some of the decisions that you're making. Yes. Like find your own level of capacity and tolerance is what it might also feel like. And I say in the book, I'm like, just maybe read this through. Maybe you don't feel conspired, you know, inspired to do all the journaling and all of that. And what I found is people will read it and changes start to happen. And then maybe a year later, they're like, I need to go back and check this out because changes have already started to happen, but they're super subtle. I didn't do too much, but it's actually better. Like what would happen if I did more? So yes, go slow, pace yourself, find a little bit of time and be looking for the places to celebrate your successes every step of the way. Yeah. I I think that we've talked about that a lot. You've got to constantly celebrate your successes, no matter how big or small they are. Basically, that's just another form of gratitude, right? So if you're celebrating even the smallest thing, expressing that gratitude helps raise your vibration, helps you become more aware of the good things in life, and then creating that energy so that you're attracting more of that positivity back into your life. Yeah. And you know that we we always use the analogy over and over again how similar finance and fitness are. We see this so many times. People start the beginning of the year and they push really hard for the first 2 weeks or 3 weeks in January and then they're all gone. Yeah, it's like you know 80% of those people who start pushing themselves really hard at the beginning of the year overdo it. They're tired mentally, physically, they're worn out. Well, the same thing happens when we're trying to make other kinds of changes in our lives. If we decide to sit down and say, well, I'm going to start meditating 30 minutes a day and journaling 12 pages and you know, you pile all these things up and you know that you're not going to stick with it because you're going to be like, well, my life's st- one, your lifestyle is going to completely change and you're going to react and say, what happened? I'm I'm late for this. I don't, you know, I don't have the time for that. You need to look at it and say, how do I do this slowly? How do I pick up my pace along the way? I definitely have adopted something I teach in the book about like looking at that child part of you and then looking at the parent part of you and ultimately the adult part of you, which is different than the parent because the parent often has some shadows associated with it. So being able to talk to yourself. Like if I'm starting something new, I will see that child, i.e. brat, who's like, oh, this is sucks. I don't want to do it. Like I will celebrate that and be like, I know, I know, but I just need you to spend like a day or two, you know, just focusing on this a little more, get yourself ready to create space for it. Like I do have conversations with all these parts of myself because the brat doesn't go away. Like, I don't know that she ever goes away, but she's there. And I, and I honor her. And I realize that once I get into the swing of something, then it becomes easier, but starting something new is actually kind of hard for me. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we highly recommend folks, if you haven't already, get a copy of Lisa's book, The Mindful Millionaire. The first half talks about being a mindful millionaire and sort of a little bit more high level. But what I love is the second half is very practical steps. Do this on day one, do this on day two. And this is how you can slowly break down some of your old money stories and start to live a more of a life of abundance. And if you can't do every single exercise in the book, just do what what you can. It's it's not a contest. So where can folks uh, get a copy of your book? So it is held in or offered through local bookstores. You always want to check there if you've got someone that you're faithful to buying from, but it's 
and Amazon. It's at Barnes and Noble. You can find it at those retailers. You can also go to mindfulmillionairebook.com and there are some really cool meditations and all kinds of freebies that you can get when you buy the book that make it even better. Nice. And then how can our listeners connect with you and maybe even join the Mindful Millionaire Facebook group? Yeah, just uh, look us up on Facebook if you want to join the group. It's free. We'd love to have you. Lots of conversation and questions and inquiry that's inspired around money. And you can also go to wealthclinic.com forward slash vision and get a meditation that helps you start doing some of what we've been talking about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to come back on the show and have this very important conversation for us and our listeners and viewers. Uh, These questions come up a lot in our community. And so we want to revisit them as much as we can and really provide people the resources that they need to be able to hopefully become uh, their own mindful millionaire and live a life of abundance as well. So thank you. So much gratitude to you both and to everyone listening. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Lisa, for a great interview and for sharing how more of us can be mindful millionaires. Thank you to our listeners and viewers for joining us for another episode. Remember to subscribe to the Queer Money newsletter in your podcast player or in the YouTube description below so you can get this week's Queer Money takeaway how you can connect with Lisa and possibly win a copy of her book, The Mindful Millionaire, and for your tip to reach financial independence faster. Then join us this Thursday when we share the most affordable LGBTQ plus friendly city to live in Kentucky. And next Tuesday, when we share a huge announcement from one of our favorite business partners. Thank you and have an amazing week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.